Hey everyone, this is the Everyday Leader Podcast, where we hear from inspiring individuals building and leading teams across Africa. Today, we feature Joseph Urtakangwa, originally from Tanzania and now based in Mauritius. Joseph is founder and CEO of Rousey, a data services company providing organizations with on-the-ground data on products, services, and activities from developing countries. He has received several awards, including the Southern Africa Startup Awards for Brave Founder of the Year and a nomination for the Global Startup Awards People's Choice. Apart from his work at Rousey, Joseph advises several early-stage startups, such as EcoBlocks, a UNDP-endorsed startup based in Mauritius that produces artificial coral reefs, and EcoPads, a U.S.-based startup providing eco-friendly sanitary pads. He believes that creating gig work is the most effective approach to reducing unemployment in developing countries. Joseph and I spoke about a wide range of topics, including escaping his brother's shadow, refining his leadership style at the African Leadership University, managing his network of over 10,000 freelance mappers, identifying self-limiting beliefs with an executive coach to unlock business growth, and finding time to advise other startup founders. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Hi, Joseph. Welcome to the Everyday Leader podcast. Really excited to speak with you today. Uh, because we're both founders based in Mauritius, we have uh, had the you know, pleasure of, of speaking with each other on several occasions and really happy to be able to unpack uh, your leadership journey as a startup founder and uh, looking forward to talking with you today. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Chris. I'm very, very uh, you know, honored and, and grateful to have been invited here as a, you know, to share my, my experiences and ideas and how I'm running Razi and, you know, other, you know, other activities that I'm doing and my, my journey, you know, to this point. Perfect. So let's start uh, at the beginning. Uh, when did you know that you wanted to be a leader? Uh, what did that thought process look like? Uh, when did that start to really occur to you? And what was an early experience you had where you did find yourself stepping up as a leader? Uh, I initially wanted to talk about my experience in running community development projects and building teams to solve those uh, those problems. But then I remembered my actual first experience um, of wanting to be a leader was at home. So I'm the second born, you know, we're four. Uh, I'm, and I'm second. And uh, when we were growing up, my older brother, my older brother was, you know, smarter, faster, had an amazing memory, photographic memory, um, was, you know, uh, was was an, an extrovert, so made people laugh, et cetera, et cetera. So he was the favorite, right? <laughs> and I was in his shadow for the first couple of years, and I saw that, okay, what are my options here, right? So I, I was the more, so I was like, okay, what are my options? What can I, what skills can I double down on to show the difference uh, between my brother so I can escape his shadow. So I noticed that he's not, you know, he wasn't as disciplined. He didn't follow rules as much and so forth. So I opted um, to do the opposite so I could, I could be seen, right? So I started, I was the most disciplined, following the rules. Um, then I was obviously, um, you know, doing well in class and so forth. But then in the house, to manage house dynamics, I decided to, to actually take responsibility and take care of my younger siblings, right? Be involved in raising them so I could be seen as the most dependable um, person in the house. You know, after, you know, if my parents are not around, then I would be the one to, to handle the house. And, you know, it started with small things like, you know, uh, 
um, you know, handling my younger sister and brother, making sure they eat, making sure they take a bath, uh, make sure they change clothes and so forth. And as we grew older, um, you know, my parents got separated and now we're being raised with our mom. So, and my brother, because my brother didn't take, he was smart and, and all that, but he didn't like um, taking responsibilities and, and having chores. I ended up being number two in the house. So if my mom is not around, I'm the one with the budget of food. I'm the one who decides who's doing what. So that's how I ended up actually um, having uh, my first leadership um, position, right? And I managed the house for more than a decade until I left, um, you know, for high school, boarding school and so forth. So yeah, so that, that, that was my first experience. There was a lot of team. It's very psychological in the house because if you have an older brother and the older brother doesn't want to follow the rules and you have to set an example for your younger siblings, therefore, if you are issuing punishments for those who didn't do chores, you have to also punish your older brother. <laughs> so that was, that, there was a lot of politics in there, which helped me now manage grown-ups when I started running now an external team. So I, I, I ran, you know, teams in church and da-da-da, but the actual significant... Um, teams that i you know that i run where when i was running community development projects so i i was at the position when i was 19 i uh, started doing community development projects focusing on uh, building water pumps uh, in rural areas uh, in southern tanzania so that young people who finished university or secondary school can start um you know doing agriculture uh, via irrigation and to do it, we partnered with uh, different clubs across 50 educational institutions, starting with colleges all the way to secondary schools. So I was running a team, like the, the entire network was 50 schools uh, with six, you know, six leaders per school. So that's 300 people. And I had an executive committee of 12 people and we were raising funds from government offices and private um, sector players and so forth so the, my management style at that point was more of an iron fist because what happened is i had you know my, my leadership style you know it's about excellence delivering um, integrity uh, being on time writing reports and so forth which is a total opposite of what um, a normal tanzanian would do <laughs> no shades uh, and you know I, I had to be very very strict when it comes to reporting, uh, you know, meeting deadlines, delivering, you know, over-delivering, uh, et cetera, et cetera, not embezzling the funds that we were raising and so forth. So I, was, I had a very tight control of the entire organization. And that was a success. That was a very big success. But as I aged, I learned that um, you'd, rather, you'd rather recruit better so that you don't have to micromanage um, teams than randomly recruiting and then having super strict and control um, processes to make sure you, you, you're catching thieves and so forth. So right now, the way I'm running Razi, um, you know, my leadership style focuses on autonomy. So I recruit better. I'm very good at recruiting right now. And once I recruit someone, I give them full autonomy over their, their department or, or team. And then they can they can recruit their own team. I don't even get involved in that. And they meet deliverables. I have an amazing team. They, they all exceed expectations. So that's how I've evolved over the last 12 years. Wow, that is quite the story from 
you know, getting that first taste of leadership when it came to your family responsibility. Uh, others, you know, tend to mention either, you know, volunteering roles or internships or even sports teams, but you're totally right that, uh, you know, within the household, you can definitely develop strong uh, leadership lessons. And it sounds like you almost did a counter positioning strategy with yeah. one of your brothers uh, that allowed you to really step up and take on uh, important responsibilities as that number two in the household. And then you, you know, dived right into some of these community building initiatives where you learned the importance of uh, you know, running a tight ship. And then ultimately the lesson of uh, it's better to recruit the right people so you can trust them and, and do other things as a leader to drive things forward. And so you uh, grew up in Tanzania uh, yes. and you uh, led these initial, initial projects uh, and then you eventually made your way to the African Leadership University uh, here in Mauritius, where we're both based now. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about how the African Leadership University uh, instilled or uh, empowered you to step up further as a leader? Yes. So um, when I came when I came to ALU, the objective wasn't um, you know wasn't to study or get a degree or such things. Uh, what drove me to ALU was the fact that it was um, a startup and was super focused on building entrepreneurs, building businesses, um, and, and getting us all the resources and support we need to be the next, gen next generation of, let's say, uh, you know, for global 2000 companies or also, right? And when I first came to ALU, you know, in the first two weeks, we started a digital magazine, right? Uh, you know, I, I assembled the team immediately and we had the digital magazine up and running within two weeks, 11 days. So the the difference between uh, ALU and other universities or educational institutions that I had been through was that the entire, um, the entire society, the entire community had a, a, what we call founder syndrome, right? There's too much emphasis on, on building businesses and starting initiatives that almost everyone were like 180 the first class and I think 120 people had their own. We're like 180 people in 120 initiatives. <laughs> so you can imagine the, you know, it's like a constitution of almost everyone or, you know, 0 0.7 people, 0.7 um, people, if that, that's a thing, had initiatives. Um, so that helped, that was very important because to thrive, you need to have exposure need to be in a community that believes or, or thinks that building building companies and enterprises is a thing and it's cool, right? And the alternative, you know, as years went by, um, you know, some people broke off to now focus on consulting and, and related, um, related career paths. So ALU had, you know, a huge effect on how I thought about um, adjusting leadership. So when we started Digital Magazine, I adjusted my leadership from an iron fist style of leadership to a more a super, super friendly. So I went all the way to the other side, which was you know, family, this and that, you know, hugs and, and so forth. Although that backfired, <laughs> you know, it was a couple of months down the line. And because it also doesn't work, right? You can't, you can't build an, an organization or build teams um with with an idea of we're all the same there's no hierarchy 
and so forth. You know, everyone has a voice. No, no, no. There, there has to be some sort of structure. Um, there has to be some, uh, you know, sort of order in in the whole process. And you know, with after after running that digital magazine and the other projects that um, I was doing with with my friends, I ended up readjusting again, having a mix of my old Iron Fist style um, with the you know new age friendly family style to have and then i realized that the most important thing is like the the, the main 50 percent of what will determine how you run the team is how you recruited them right who you recruited so then i had to adjust how like my recruitment criterias uh, who fits in what department and how do i determine if someone is good as, uh, you know, at their job technically and and good as a person to work with, right? And that, you know, and now the emphasis became their intrinsic motivations. So rather than, you know, most people are very happy to join a startup uh, because they think it's cool, they think you're going to, you know, make it big and so forth. But you need to understand what's what's their what's their drive? Like, how are they at home? Uh, what's their family like? Like, what's what are they? really being driven by um and that will determine how long they will stick and um also determine their leadership style how much they will tolerate um under delivering and, and so forth so alu was very very important in in having all those things explored tested very big good environment for testing exploring different um leadership styles different uh, experiments on on businesses and so forth so by the end by the end of the third year, we, we started uh, Roazi with my, my classmates. Started Roazi, uh, incorporated it, and started building a team. So we ended up having a completely different team from the teams we had um, built at ALU based on our experiences. And, and yeah, and then we took off. Um, took off as, you know, uh, it's like you, you've raised us for the three years in a, in a bubble, in a controlled environment. And now we had enough experience to leave and, and start our company independently in the world and succeed. Amazing. So you went through this uh, innovative university program where it sounds like you weren't only a student, but you were also put to work immediately. Yeah. Uh, and that over those three years really set you up for success. And by the time you graduated, you had founded uh, Rousey, uh, the startup that you still run today. Um, can you tell us a bit more about what Rousey does uh, and, and, and where you're headed? Yes. So Rousey provides organizations with on-ground data on products, services, and activities from developing countries. And we're doing this by utilizing a network of what we call mappers, who are unemployed young people in these developing countries, um, but they're educated, they have smartphones, and they have access to internet. So right now we have a network of more than 10,000 mappers. Um, they're in 40 African countries, in villages, towns, municipalities, and major cities. Um, and we've started this year, we've started building a network of mappers in India. We've started with Bangalore. And we're expanding to other cities and, and rural areas as well. Um, so we serve organizations in all sectors, all industries, um, doing all sorts of activities and projects, whether they are in Africa or not, as long as, uh, and whether they're in other developing countries or not, as long as they have interest on obtaining offline, on ground data that cannot be accessed digitally, right? So we use locals um, to, to get this data. We have 
a tight verification system. We use tech, but we also use our network of auditors um, to verify uh, MAPA submissions. Our accuracy rate is 100% because MAPAs get paid either way. So whether if you're mapping, um, let's say, schools, uh, which have, uh, let's say you're mapping uh, hospitals which are providing COVID vaccines, uh, whether you reach there and you find that the vaccines are, have run out or they're still there, you get paid either way. So MAPAs have no incentive of uh, providing uh, different sorts of information. So yeah, so we've been we've been um, very successful so far. We've built very big network, and right now we're mapping in Niger, in Chad, areas that I couldn't imagine, uh, you know, having coverage in because of their you know political states and such. But we've we've had success on that front, and we look forward. You know, right now we we are expanding our um, custom acquisition efforts on Europe, Japan, and the US. And, but if you're an organization based anywhere in the world, of course, uh, you can tap into our services and we'll be, we'll soon be in Southeast Asia or rural Asia, developing Asia, as well as uh, South America. And yeah, so that's, that's Razi in a nutshell. The, the model uh, strikes me as uh, super important. Uh, you're helping not only, you know, impact organizations and governments, but also for-profit companies that are seeking to better serve uh, and better position their um, products and services to a larger populations that uh, generally go under or you know, underserved. And uh, you're providing this important data that would otherwise not be available for them to make those types of decisions. Yes. So uh, that's super important and uh, really inspiring to see you do that work. And you mentioned you have over 10,000 mappers and you're continuing to grow. Now, yes. I've found myself on several occasions managing um, just merely hundreds of field staff uh, yeah. in, a, in a fairly contained area, like a region or a country. But yeah. you have 10,000 mappers spread across um, continents. Now, uh, how do you manage performance at scale? I know you're not directly employing all of the mappers, but you do have a financial relationship with them and you do have yes. uh, the need to make sure that they're input that they're doing, I, I presume, through their smartphone is of yeah. good quality. Um, and so how do you, how do, you uh, do that? How, what are the strategies and insights you've learned over the past four years in terms of managing this type of data collection at scale? Yep. So the management of mappers um, is, in, is in two ways, right? So the performance is fairly straightforward. We're, we're tracking the, the you know, app usage and submissions and payments and, and earnings and so forth. And that determines who is, because some of our parameters are who is you know, always available, quickest to take on a gig, um, delivers fast and delivers volumes, right? Um, so that, that ranks the mapper higher because then that mapper will be the person we tap onto first if we want you know, the data immediately, right? And if you want, you know, to upgrade them to a super mapper and so forth. Um, but the other, you know, parameters that we have, um, our network has layers of, um, we have auditors, we have normal mappers, and then within the mappers, you have super mappers who are people we tap into or prioritize for gigs and we tap into to expand our networks, our networks in different lo localities. So we have, what we need with regards to managing map, because mappers are, you know, essentially freelancers. Uh, they're taking on these gigs. They are not 
um, they're not forced to accept gigs. They're not forced to complete gigs um, because it's up to them to decide whether they want to make um, certain amount of earnings in a week or so. Um, but we track their behavior so that we can predict who to reach out to first if you want data within a certain period of time. So there's is that complexity. For instance, um, I'll you know I'll tell you uh, if if you're looking at let's say okay I'll give you a, a simple example. Um, there there are mappers mostly let's say if you take Nigeria in Lagos, um, female mappers in Lagos, Nigeria, they tend to skip a week. So they would work this week and then skip the following week and then work the other week because once they make money they want to use that money to take care of their family and friends or you know, do shopping or here and there and then once it runs out then they come back to map <laughs> so once you predict their you know earning and spending pattern then you understand that i would expect this person to work every other week so in the gaps you have to have other mappers fill in those gaps right and so forth. So all these things are being used to um, to optimize the, uh, the the submissions, right? The the data submissions, so the client can get their data within the specified period. But in, in in short, it's not. It's very complex in terms of thinking and modeling it. But once all those things are are, are set, it's actually straightforward. You have um, key. Um, key indicators that you're looking at and, and adjusting. Uh, the way we expand our network of mappers within different localities, for instance, let's say, um, let's say you have a mapper in in Embu, Kenya, and then you want to exp to have like 100 mappers in Mount Meru. Uh, I mean, in Mount Kenya, then all you have to do is tap into the mappers closest to the Mount Kenya area. And then invite their siblings or friends and so forth who are in that area to to join in. Um, so all of this is geographic, and then it's performance based, and then it's behavioral. We have to track their behavior so we can predict who is going to do what when. Um, yeah. So and we have we have so many layers. There's another layer of education um, and 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 technical skills. So we have mappers, for instance, if we're mapping. We've been mapping car dealerships across Sub-Saharan Africa, and when you're mapping car dealerships, you you're better off um, giving those gigs to mappers who have done mechanical engineering because when they go to test drive and do this, they would have better understanding of uh, of the the whether the cars you know the used cars are you know uh, functional used cars or they're they're sold with defects and so forth, right? So we have we have to also track now. This is how. Um, our current uh, investment in a startup called Credible Pro came about because Credible Pro does reference checking, provides a reference checking solution to organizations. And for us, we, we use it and we saw that it's important. It's very necessary for us to be able to now uh, group mappers based on their technical skills so that certain mapping gigs that require some technical background can be assigned to people who are best you know who are you know better positioned to understand the map uh, and map those areas like the mechanical engineering versus um used cars scenario so yeah so that, those are the general areas that uh we play around with to manage the ten thousand plus and hopefully a hundred thousand in the next year and a million year after uh network of mappers 
Fascinating. Uh, would love to circle back once you're at the million mark to see uh, how that has scaled up. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot to learn from the likes of, of Uber uh, in that regard. Now, while you have a network, a uh, very large network of mappers, uh, I imagine your team uh, is still relatively small. Um, and as the founder uh, and as the CEO of your company, uh, I imagine that you on occasion need to make difficult decisions and get your team to buy in around that direction. Do you have an example of a leadership decision that you've made in, in a recent year or so uh, that you really had to grapple with and, and push forward? I would say, actually, I would say investing in, in Credible Pro has been, is the major decision I've made in the last year, right? Uh, we invested this month, actually, uh, but we've been working with the Credible Pro team since, uh, since November last year to see, you know, the variables and then the value, assess the value um, to our MAPA community. And, and we expect to actually do more of this um, investment style, um, you know, partnerships, like investing in a startup that uh, is providing services to us rather than just having them as normal service providers. The difficulty, the difficulty to the team has been, but the team understands. So this is, my management style is autonomy. And I like um, I like keeping teams in I like keeping teams in separate bubbles and and synchronizing them at the at just at the high level. So, for example, if so, you have the the map the team that deals with uh, mapper support. The team that deals with mapper support has nothing to do with customer support, which deals with organizations. And then they get better and better at what they're doing, right? Uh, the team that deals with marketing has very little to do with the sales team. And then the, both teams get better and better at what they're doing. I've worked in corporate in different corporations, global, you know, multinationals. And I've seen that if there's too much um, integration of teams, then you have office politics and people who are not good in certain niche um, or, or specific areas might try to overrun decisions of people who are good in those areas. For instance, you might easily have, um, you know, sales guys trying to dictate what the marketing guys do or the other way around. You might easily have customers, uh, customer support guys wanting to influence the mapper support people and so forth. So I keep them in different bubbles. Um, so when I'm making a decision like, um, you know, investing in Credible Pro, uh, what we're looking at as the the, the the top directors, we're looking at how it synchronizes with all these um, separate teams. And once it works, if it wants to run a, a three-month experiment and it works, then we, you know, uh, inform the teams that will be closely related to what the, uh, the startup will be doing on what's going on and and how the integration will work, and everyone else just gets the general, um, the general idea of the high-level um, synchronicity. You know, like at high level, this is why Credible Pro is there for reference checking and 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 doing background check on all these mappers and and such, right? And everyone else understands. But then the people who will be working with them, such as the mapper support team, um, are the ones who get into the details. So it's an because my entire team, like every every manager in my team 
is I give them autonomy to actually recruit. So they decide when they want to recruit, who they want to recruit, and so forth. Um, the, the top executive team only does the approvals. So it's much easier for it, it's been much easier for everyone else to understand because this is how the entire company runs. Um, so yeah, so that's that's the general idea. That's the that's the major decision we've made in the last year and generally how it's not so difficult for the team to um, to adapt to new moves that we make because you know already we operate in we have an operating style that allows quick that allows new integrations very fast and they don't disrupt the workings of of other teams you seem like a very self-aware and intentional leader and very cognizant of the various team dynamics uh, at play wherever you go. Um, and, and so you recently, well, now it's been a year and a half or so, uh, you had an opportunity to work with a professional executive coach through our Coffee Chat coaching platform. Yes. And I, I wanted to hear from you on how that, how that uh, coaching engagement went and how it might have been ex- different from the experience you had with mentors from uh, African Leadership University and then uh, Laplage Factory, a startup accelerator that you uh, had been uh, working uh, with. Um, so, I, yes, I, I was fortunate enough to uh, get an executive coach um, from Coffee Chat, uh, Miss uh, Senia, and I had a great eight to nine sessions, um, which, which spun through, I think, four months. Uh, towards the transition from 2020 to 2021. Now, the difference I learned, the difference prior to that, I had not um, been with an executive coach before. I had only been with mentors from the accelerators, you said, and my main mentor has, you know, has helped us uh, for years to get to where we were at that point. But what the first difference that I learned is the the mentors that we've had uh, all the you know all the mentors that we've had had focused on the technical aspects of what we're doing, right? Um, you know, finances, business development, uh, growing a team, tech, and so forth. And for the first time with an executive coach, I was able. You know, the executive coach took me through the. You know, I, I talk about intrinsic motivation, but went through like the real intrinsic, you know, um, motives and drives and personal like personal reasons like the foundations of why I'm doing what I'm doing and and where I'm heading personally and how that um how that leads how that helps and and, and synchronizes with the, the vision of Razi and everything I'm doing as well as the other teams. So that work now the importance there was the executive coach that I had um, we both agreed and we wanted to take on the style that's closely related to therapists, right? Still professional, but um, taking that therapist approach because the, as, a, as a founder, as a, as a leader, I think you might relate. We, we have, maybe we're not aware of we are, but we have barriers, mental barriers, right? Um, we have different reasons for not doing certain things. For example, at that at the time in 2020, my only focus was let's just double down in Africa, focus on expanding our team in Africa, and focus on 
um, customer acquisition on the continent, right? For organizations that are in the continent already. And when I had one of the things we went through on the on the on the sessions were, you know, why not other other continents, right? Why not other countries now? Why not now? Because my plan was okay, maybe we'll do that in five years, but why not now, right? And my my fear was the stretch, stretching too thin, having a network too wide, and then not being able to manage it. But why not acquire customers who are interested in those regions as well, right? Uh, maybe I'm not there yet, you know, let's grow, you know, I'm thinking now the normal startup phases, you know, let me grow from this phase and expand to other markets. Like, no, like there's no actual excuse for not having a network spread through many countries. There's no barrier. There's no actual physical barrier to not, um, to not acquiring customers who are interested in data from Thailand and, and Vietnam and so forth. Isn't right. So if you have a system that has worked, uh, of recruiting and managing the mapper network that can be applicable in almost any developing country. There's no physical, like there's no actual reason of not going ahead and spreading your network throughout all these areas. And something like that is a, it's like a switch flip in your brain of something that you are maybe subconsciously, you know, limiting yourself. And then when someone else takes you through the journey and you understand that all the excuses you're making don't have any basis, then you wake up, right? So we like after the sessions, we immediately grew our revenue 10x, um, monthly revenue grew 10x and, and has now even exceeded 10x, 20x, and so forth. And we, we changed the way we're, we're, we're running the team. We changed our you know approach. We were very conservative on how First, we want to expand the network of mappers because we're saying, you know, if we expand too much and then we don't have enough customers, then, you know, mappers will be so idle and all that stuff. But by just switching the way we're looking at things, we're able to now expand first and then acquire customers faster because now our approach of acquiring customers changed, right? And I remember back, back, back in those days, we were focusing on products, only collecting data on products. And the executive coach helped to like, okay, uh, why are you only focusing on products? Can't you collect data on roads and, and something else, trees and water? And we're like, ah, man, we will, we, but it's going to, it's in our three-year plan. Why not now? Because <laughs> if you're only collecting data on products, it means you're limiting the, the organizations that you can serve to only organizations which are interested in product data, right? And then it, it, the, the switch went on, like, actually, yes, actually, we have the mappers, we have the the um the system we, we can actually do it today and after that after the brain opened up on that aspect we immediately started going that on all sorts of things um so i think and that approach is a therapist like approach if you do it in a normal um you know strategy um you know meetings and such it will be too strategic that oh maybe your finances you don't want to stretch yourself too thin you don't want to do this so it makes logical sense not to stretch yourself right but if you go through your through a therapist kind of approach um, that I had with my executive coach, it was more of based on your personal ambitions and goals, and based on where you want to take the company, and based on the timeline that you've put yourself, it only makes sense. And because there's no objective barrier to you collecting data on all these things, it only makes sense for expansion today rather than you know three years later. And of course, I plan to go back to the exact same executive coach and doing those sessions again and again, uh, at least um, once a year.
Amazing. Thank you so much for opening up about uh, how you used uh, your coaching sessions. It's true that uh, when you work with a coach, it's ultimately kind of self-driven. What you talk about, what you want to focus on is up to the individual. Um, and it sounds like you use the opportunity to really uncover and address some uh, self-limiting beliefs that you uh, were holding for how you're going about your business. And that's that's not to say, you know, you, you sound like an incredibly driven uh, young leader, and uh, yet still there is some self-limiting beliefs that were preventing you from 10xing your business, as you've described it. Um, yeah. So really happy that coaching was uh, successful uh, for you, um, and uh, it, it was a great resource to complement the uh, long-term mentorship that you were receiving from uh, Michelle at uh, La Plage Factory. Yes. Um, so really happy to to hear that. Um, and you know, you you've also been doing some startup advising to other uh, startups uh, as you continue to grow your own startup. So I, I'm curious how you go about balancing uh, your own founder responsibilities that require uh, one kind of set of leadership principles, and then how you switch gears on the side to then advise other founders, um, because I, you must, you know, have a different approach to those conversations. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So, okay. So one thing I have to, um, acknowledge is I've gotten better at recruiting. So I've recruited the most amazing, I've assembled the most amazing team I've ever had. And because of how capable this team is and the capabilities that I've seen, so, so prior to, you know, as I, I was growing up, one of my biggest leadership, um, leadership challenges was I was putting, um, I was holding people to the same standards I'm holding myself. And that might, that might seem as a good thing, but it's not necessarily a good thing because you, if you're someone who is too hard on yourself and you, you expect to learn a wide variety of things, you expect to take a lot of initiative and so forth, it could be unfair to expect other people to work as hard, to move as fast, you know, to you know, to spend their entire life, you know, running company. For instance, one of the things uh, I do is I don't really have, you know, have a life per se. You know, like you know, people attend weddings, they do this and that. They have they have all these activities. I don't have as much. I limit my free days to uh, Sundays, and it's not it's not fair to say okay everyone if you want to succeed you know work you know, 14 hours a day da, 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 six days a week it's, it's not it's not good as a rubric however when i switch i said okay rather than shoving my you know personal development style on someone else why not hire people who are already moving that way so that we can just link up and and, and work at the same pace right so I ended up with Rozzy, uh, you know, I've, I've had hiring mistakes, you know, in the beginning. And then as I was making mistakes and letting go of people, I ended up now assembling a team of people who are working really, really hard. On Sundays, we can have, <laughs> we can have work things or something. Like, guys, let's go have a life, you know, drink coffee or do something. So people are working really, really hard. They're super passionate about what we're doing. They take initiatives. They're true leaders, actually. In Rwazi, what we have is actually uh, like what you'd call departments are like mini startups. So our department managers, they they close partnership deals. That's how 
that's how fast they move. They close partnership deals. They negotiate. They know how to negotiate down. They, like, they do everything in the interest of the company as if it's their own company, right? So that has now taken off so much from my plate because I know, you know, things just move well because I have people who, who are handling them, right? So now my job is primarily uh, is business development and high-level business development and uh, have someone for government relations, but I work closely on that as well, um, as well as you know the overall organization strategy and keeping an eye on obviously everything that everyone is doing even if it's autonomous so as i as we started doing well um as young people we've learned a lot about ownership right um, having ownership uh, building wealth um as your organization and personally i was like okay rather than starting to spend money on on you know buying commodities why not invest uh, my personal, you know, income uh, into other businesses that I see a lot of potential in, right? And in, uh, you know, as well as investments, provide, you know, sit on boards, then provide um, advice to those businesses and help them actually grow. So I identified um, two startups that I personally invested in, uh, the two main startups that are, they all have patents, uh, one does uh, hemp made um, by degradable sanitary pads for women, and the other one builds um, coral, artificial coral reefs um, here in Mauritius. The hemp one is the U.S. company, and the coral reef one is Mauritius. Uh, and so I've I've done investment, personal investments, and I advise. Now I only spend about one to two hours a week on 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 these organizations. And I have other organizations that I advise on Saturdays. There are like two others, two other organizations. I drop startups. So for the startups that I didn't invest in, that I only provide advice in the Kenyan startups mostly, and um, one in Tanzania. I, you know, we have we would have like uh, strategy calls once a week, one hour calls on Saturday, and if the person isn't um, isn't applying and applying what we're talking about and executing, then I just drop them, right? Because what I need for founders, I expect founders to act. I, I, I hold founders on the same level I hold myself. So I expect them to kill themselves in the process of building their companies. So if someone is not putting in that much work, I just drop them. Now for the companies that I've actually put my, my money in, um, I put my money in because I know these founders, they've been doing great things already. Um, you know, the, the high level excellence delivery and all that stuff, and it works. So I have um, once a week um, strategy calls with them. We help them get customers. I help them raise uh, funding and, and other things. So it's not it's not a, a time consum. It's, it's the hours that you'd have been spending watching a Netflix series or movie that I just take, you say one movie is two hours, so you spend two hours um you know building a strategy and connecting uh, another startup to an investor right or to a supermarket chain for their product um or, or, and so forth so it's not it's not really time that is being eaten now so if you have your time let's say 24 hours in a day you're working 12 hours on Razi, you're sleeping eight hours then you have four hours for food and other things then that's monday to friday and then my saturdays are for my personal projects so that's when I advise other startups. 
and I also make music on the side and, and such. So you have that Saturday and then Sunday is just for sleeping out and eating out with friends and so forth. So the, the actual schedule fits in. It's actually not um, not cumbersome and I don't get clogged with so many things. I'm not the founder or CEO in any of these startups. So I just, they, they have their own CEOs and founders. Um, you know, I'm a co-founder, but I don't uh, run the operations. So it's just an hour of strategy and connecting them with customers or investors and that's it. And I imagine your time speaking with and advising other founders can also be helpful for your work at Rousey as it, it might bring up uh, important topics that are reminders of what you also need to focus on as a leader. Yes, 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 very much, very much so. And not not just that, it's like you're, you're honing, or this is what happens. Uh, I think you would agree with me. If When you're starting, let's say, um, in the first, as you're starting as a founder, you reach out to a lot of customers and a lot of uh, investors and a lot of potential partners. So you build connections. And not all these investors are interested in your you know, geography or industry or business, right? But you, you can continue you know, networking and, 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 and chatting just because you're friends or acquaintances, but you're, you're not doing anything together, right? But all these are connections that we've built and you're not exploiting, right? But based on that position, based on the fact that you have access to all these people, it's, it only makes sense for me at least, only makes sense to find another startup that you could link up with someone that you know um, and, and that startup would benefit and the person would benefit as well. So for instance, I don't sell physical products. So I have no interest in putting my product in any supermarket. But because of Ruazi, Ruazi services, we have you know, in, uh, connections with a lot of supermarket chain um, directors and so forth. So it, for me, if I'm looking at a business to support, I'm like, okay, if I see you're selling sanitary pads, da, 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 they're helpful, friendly, and so forth. I know a lot of NGO people. I know a lot of market chain guys. So it only, and I know a lot of investors in this field. Um, for instance, this uh, sanitary pads business is run by a female CEO. I know a lot of investors who only focus on female CEOs and so forth. So I can just, like, I can see the plan and I'm like, okay, I'm not utilizing them. So why can't I connect them with someone who I know will uh, will make the the best of this uh, this network. So it, it's not hard at all. As I remember for this time, but we, I raised, you know, I, I closed their first fundraise in 30 minutes. So I had, I was on a call with one of my partners who is now a good friend uh, in Florida. And he was like, Joseph, you know, I'm actually, my friends and I are looking for, uh, you know, impact startup to invest in or even donate. If you do you know any that I'm like, actually, yes, I do. <laughs> so we just had a call in a call in 30 minutes, the guy invested. That was it. So it's like, I'm, you know, it's, it's that easy as you grow older and, and you become more experienced. It's that easy to help other founders. Now, what you require, at least what I require is absolute excellence. I need to say that the founder is actually killing themselves to get the, the company off the ground and successful. Uh, it definitely sounds like you are a uh, net contributor to the uh, startup ecosystem. So thank you for all of the value that you're adding. And thank you for all of the honest and, and straightforward insights and uh, reflections you've had today in our conversation. I know I've learned a lot uh, having spoken with you uh, in the past and, and learned some more things today. And I'm sure that people listening will also 
have appreciated what you have shared about your journey. And I look forward to continuing to follow you on your inspiring journey to a million mappers. So thank you, Joseph. Awesome. Thank you so much, Chris, for having me. Uh, it's been a pleasure.